Welcome to Almost Here, Round the Corner Future Technology Podcasts with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies poised to transform our lives for better or worse are the focus of this podcast. Almost Here means these technologies are now here and starting to be used or just around the corner from Bitcoin to artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more. The Bitcoin, Ethereum, and Altcoin Super Conference is coming to Dallas, Texas, February 16th, 17th, and 18th, 2018. If you know of a better way to get the latest insider knowledge about crypto, to hear directly from the top minds in this field, to interact personally with 800 fellow crypto lovers, hodlers, investors, miners, traders, developers, and founders, then I'd like to hear about it. If you don't, then you don't want to miss out. Register today for the Bitcoin, Ethereum, and Altcoin Super Conference. Just go to BitcoinSuperConference.com and register today to qualify for super early bird rates, the lowest rates on tickets and hotel rooms. That's BitcoinSuperConference.com. Hi, this is Richard Jacobs with Future Tech Podcast. Uh, my guest today is Rick Salvini. Hopefully I've said his name properly. Uh, he's the founder of the Pirate Party. Rick, how are you doing? Doing great. Hi, you're Richard. Good. Yeah. So would, would you let listeners know what, what is the uh, the Pirate Party, Pirate Academy? Uh, you know, what does it do and how does it work? Well, the Pirate Movement in general, I mean, you, you, we didn't choose the name that way. The, the Hollywood chose it for us. What we're talking about is something as common sense as our kids ought to have the same civil liberties in their digital environment as our parents in their analog. Just something as straightforward as civil liberties being passed on from generation to generation. That is not, uh, I don't think that that is the slightest bit unreasonable, and yet it's not happening. Our kids are not able to send anything to anybody anonymously, like our parents were, because Hollywood and the copyright industry have said, we can't make you be money if celebrities are the same. They can't walk outside while being literally tracked at the footstep level. They can't read a newspaper without the government reading over their shoulder, knowing what articles they read, in what order, and for how long. I mean, the list goes on. And we're basically saying that enough of this surveillance, enough of this copyright entry excuses. Like, this is civil liberty. A lot of people fought, bled, and died to give us this. Yeah, it always seems to be under the guise of potential terrorism and crime, and that's the excuse for taking away yeah. any and all civil liberties. Excuse being the key word here. As this is something that a lot of politicians wanting anyway, as in, if you're looking back to history, Richard, you know, people in power have always used that power to grow that power and safeguard that power. And so it's, it turns out it's not so much about the high reasons, the ones that, that are being presented on the table. These proposals, a lot of them have been in the first order for a significant amount of time, months, if not years, until something appeared that just make it politically possible to push through. The Patriot Act and the, and the wake of 9-11 was one such thing. I mean, nobody who voted for that monster had a chance to read it because it was rushed through and it was made toxic to be against. So, you, yeah, you could argue that it's because terrorism, but I would argue it's, it's really not. It's because whatever passes the bill on a particular day. And that's much more dangerous. Well, I've been, you know, doing a lot of interviews about Bitcoin, um, mm -hmm. you know, digital currencies, and same thing is, is happening there. 
you know, governments all over the world are saying, oh, it could be used for terrorism, it'd be used by criminals, and, you know, they want to regulate it and gain control of it. So Absolutely. Always, well, what, it just seems like that's the same excuse, no matter what it is. Absolutely. Well, what you what you can what you find quite interesting is that the uh, governments all over the world right now are cracking down on freedom of speech, on the right to move freely, on the on the right to have anonymous opinions and communicate freely, and so on. And bank free would be the or free personal finances would be the next thing. But only excuses differ. Like in China, it's bit of the nation. In the Middle East, it's some kind of religious morale. In the, here in, in the West, you, you see justifications like child porn, organized crime, terrorism, and even, yeah, piracy. So what this tells me is that this is not really political. It's simply just the power holders seeking to entrench their power using whatever excuses they get away with. In the inside of the European Parliament as well, we have high reasons and low reasons where any political proposal, all of them, literally all of them, had a high reason and a low reason for coming into being. The high reason was obviously one that was palatable, that it was all fluffy unicorns and rainbows and something that was went, went over really well, whereas the low reason was the reason somebody gave, somebody cared enough about this issue in the first place to come up with a high reason and push the issue. And these were always completely different. It seems like, um, this is just my theory, but everyone's so busy just trying to live their life that, you know, how can yep. they pay attention to all the potential legislation what people want to put forward and to fight any of it, especially if it gets into law or on the, you know, in the law books, it's such a huge effort to change things or overturn them. I mean, that seems like, it seems like that's why things get passed. Yeah, I can't blame them, you know. I mean, if you're, if you want to read our example, in, in Berlin in 1932, families were still skating in the parks in winter. And then people are literally trying to live their lives. And these, these things, such a deep rabbit hole that if you start going down it, it's, it's just sucks the energy out of you because it, it becomes so depressing. You want to turn the whole thing upside down and, and almost start over, you know? Now, obviously, I'm not advocating that in terms, of, in terms of violence. I'm advocating that in terms of technical disruption. I'm advocating that in terms of making these decision processes obsolete, obsolete by technology where we can. But, I mean, we're still talking about something as fundamental as the right to hold a private conversation. Something as fundamental as the right to uh, to take part of and share information. These are the the most basic things, like freedom of assembly, freedom to peacefully petition a grievance against the government. All of a sudden, just because we're doing it in a digital environment, these civil liberties don't apply anymore. And it's like the the senator in the U.S. said a couple of thank you weeks ago. Nobody is forced beyond the internet. That attitude sum, really sums up the entire problem from legislators. They think, still think that the internet is some sort of toy that you can take away from kids when they've been misbehaving, instead of being a, the, the most crucial piece of infrastructure that society has. And this most crucial piece of infrastructure is literally getting regulated by a cartoon industry, Disney Corporation. Why are we letting Disney Corporation regulate the most important infrastructure we have? What do you think about the um, 
you know, cities like London, where the average person is on CCTV, you know, 300 times a day. How did, how did something like that happen? Was there any public hearings on it? You know, could that ever be overturned or this is just, it's over? It's a, it's a permanent fixture. Yeah, there are two aspects to that. I mean, the first is that once you have a surveillance society in place, I, I kind of see the role of the middle generation here between the analog and the digital just to hold back this madness until people who understand the internet are in power. Because if we get the next generation to be the ones pulling the strings, then we won't need to go on the defense anymore, as in we, we need people understanding the internet in power. Because, as you say, once a surveillance society is in place, then it takes centuries, literally centuries, to undo and roll back. There is this saying that whatever one generation puts up with as a temporary nuisance, the next generation will take for totally granted. And that's the, that's the real danger here. Like something as simple as passports were supposed to be a, a temporary measure introduced during World War I. The reason we have license plates on cars is because the Supreme Court in the U.S. even had a ruling saying that automobiles are obviously only used for organized crime. So they needed to be registered and tracked. Really? I didn't know that. Like, like all of this goes, all of, all of today's news is this, go back and what we're creating today will go forward. Hmm. That's fascinating. I didn't know that. So what, what do you think the role of um, organizations like WikiLeaks, do you think they're helping, hurting, having no effect? How about them? Well, there. I mean, WikiLeaks is working with the, with the legacy media, old media, as I like to call it, or legacy media, to to be a source or or to have anonymized sources. I, I think they've had a tremendous impact in showing legacy media that guys, you can't just leave, you can't just milk your sources for all they're worth and then leave them by the wayside to die, which was literally what happened with Edward Snowden. I mean, the the established media was get, taking him for all all he was worth, and then WikiLeaks, who had received none of this material, was the organization that sent an operative to Hong Kong, smuggled him out through, literally through immigrant families, and got, got him out of there. Hid him at Sheremetyevo Airport for three weeks until he got a temporary temporary political asylum in Russia. I mean, this kind of care for the most fundamental parts of freedom of the press. You would think resourceful, uh, re resourceful organizations care a little bit more about that, but they don't. It's turned out that it's up to our organizations like WikiLeaks to care about protecting sources, encrypting information, these things that should be fundamental. And so I, I think legacy media has a lot to learn from this. And let's not forget that Julian Assange is a prize-winning reporter in this instance. And he's an eternal prisoner in the embassy in London now, too. And who knows if he's ever going to make it out or die in there or what will happen. So. We don't. And I mean, that, that's a really outrageous story. I mean, the, the ups and downs of it is that it was all down to prestige of some middle management moron in Swedish law enforcement who didn't want to lose face. And therefore, one of the world's most important sources of embarrassing governments in the and I say that in the most positive possible sense has has been locked up for for several years and deprived of the pride of his freedom I, I think this is going to go down as one of the bigger scandals go, going forward so what 
what are you trying to accomplish? What do you have any specific goals that you are hoping you can accomplish in the next few months or year, or do you think it's really all just? Oh, it's. I mean, how are you they're, fighting they're, the battle? Is it amorphous, or do you have specific initiatives that uh, that you're working on? Well, you know, Richard, it, this is <laughs> this is a, a big battle. Essentially, trying to make, safeguard civil liberties for the next generation. And so you you got to be a little bit ear ear to the ground about when windows of opportunity comes up. You you got to be a little bit ear to the ground about when battles are coming ahead or when the established when the vested interests are tr- are trying to pull a fast one. But I think the big fight uh, about this is still to come. And I think you you mentioned London and cameras. I mean, one thing that we have we've got that going for us to show that no. When you're adding this many cameras, you're actually not getting anything out of it. Like you can backtrack how somebody was moving on the subway, but you don't need this many cameras to do that either. And so I still see my mission as holding back the, holding back a real dystopian surveillance society until the next generation can come into power and stave it off for good. If they'll do that. Well, I'm I'm kind of counting on people who understand the internet not wanting to not wanting to destroy it. Are you, are you familiar with organizations like Open Media that try to do uh, email grassroots campaigns where they, they get people to call a certain representative and voice their opinion about a bill or Judicial Watch that will file you know amicus briefs and file lawsuits, um, at least in the U.S., for freedom of, of information? Are there any organizations in particular that you think are, are doing a great job and are really making inroads into uh, Increasing privacy. There are many. I mean, you used to have Privacy International, which published these, uh, I think, yearly privacy rankings, and you could, and you could really use those in uh, building public policy because it would shame politicians when their country was called out as being substandard or not living up to a civil liberties minimum bar. Uh, overall, I, I would say you have the perennials here, like the Free Software Foundation. You have the Electronic Frontier Foundation. You have a couple of newcomers about like Fight for the Future and and uh, other people who were absolutely instrumental in fighting against uh, SOPA and ACTA, for example. And obviously, you have Anonymous, where which is which keeps being decentralized and amorphous. The uh, the overall feeling I get though from these kind of initiatives is that you got to stay creative and just essentially DDoSing a senator. Yeah, you're you're going to be a nuisance. You, you're not going to get their attention for something if you're just swamping their phone. As opposed to, for example, with Acta and Sopa, where we were staging synchronized protests in 200 European cities. That was something they had never seen before. And that, get, that gets them asking, what, what, like, what is this about? Why are there synchronized protests in 200 cities? Like, the, the, the map looks like a hedgehog. And, and because we had people on the inside of the European Parliament, we were able to explain that. And therefore, the European Parliament voted against the ACTA so-called trade agreement and, and uh, scuttled it globally. So, which brings, up, which brings me to the next action. Like, what we did right after that was to send flowers to every single member of European Parliament. They had loads of flowers coming. That had never happened before. And that's the kind of thing, that, that's the kind of action you got to aim for. Something that has just never happened before in their career. Doing what somebody's done a thousand times before, like swamp them with calls. Well, you're, you're just 
going to create another day on the job for them. It's not memorable. You would think, I mean, this is laughable, but I thought politicians are human beings too. They are, which is why you got to go outside of their job. You got to go outside of their nine to five schedule. You got to make it feel to them. You got to make it personal to them. You got to make it not a day on the job. Having truckloads of flowers come in, that makes it personal. Risking losing their job, that makes it personal. Calling their work phone? Well, you know, maybe when Google lists your phone on their front page, and so you're seeing 1,300,222 and something calls, uh, calls in, in the phone queue. But it's getting increasingly hard to just come up with new concepts. But why would, you know, I know this is probably silly, maybe it's silly. You know, why would, why would people do this? You know, if it's plain to, you would think everyone wants their privacy unless they believe yeah, they're going to be in a protected class and everyone else will have to deal with, you know, the bad stuff. But why would they make these laws? Why wouldn't they look at them and say, this is crazy. We don't want this. Why do we have to lobby politicians? And why do they, they so uniformly seem hell-bent on trying to control everyone? Well, the, you're answering the, your own question there, Richard, aren't you? As in, most people do want their own privacy, the key word being their own privacy. But it's other people that don't want to afford privacy too. And then they're making good use of these people who say dumb things, and these are dumb things, like, no, I don't need privacy because I don't have anything to hide, which is roughly as smart, smart a thing to say, but I don't need a voice because I, I can't think of anything to say. Well, tell me, you know, that's a good thing. Tell me why that's such a, I hate that statement. Let's take that in four steps. I mean, you can have a, if you want a 15 second soundbite, then there's this saying you don't have anything to hide because, saying you don't have anything to fear because you have nothing to hide is just as dumb as saying you, you don't need freedom of speech because you have nothing to say at the moment or that nobody should have freedom of speech rather. But let's go dive a little bit more into depth into that. I mean, there are four major reasons why nothing to hide is deceptive, false, and dishonest. And they go from the most obvious and least important to the most obvious, to the most important and least obvious. So starting with the first reason is that the rules may change. Once you agree to give up privacy, say, for something as blatant as cameras in your home maybe to protect to prevent domestic violence or child abuse. Everybody needs to have cameras in their homes to protect child to prevent child abuse. Right, right. Then there then there is a new executive and a new legislature who, who also who turns back the clock and outlaws homosexual con- consensual love. And they already have cameras in place in all homes to enforce their new laws. At which point it is far too late to protect the veterans. So that's rule number one, the laws may change, which is the most okay. most obvious one. Rule number two, or reason number two, is that it doesn't matter if you're law-abidingly white as snow, because it's not you who get to determine that. Instead, it's determined by bureaucrats who are looking at your life through a thin paper tube, trying to find patterns that deviate from the normal. When you're stopping your car at the main sex worker street for two hours every Friday night, the Department of of Social Welfare, or whatever it might be called, pulls certain conclusions from that single data point. They don't know and they don't care that you're helping your elderly grandmother who happens to live right there with her weekly groceries for two hours every Friday night. 
when you're stopping at, at a bar on your way home from work frequently because they happen to have the world's best reindeer meatballs, in your opinion, and you never had a single drink there. The Department of Driving Licenses will draw certain conclusions from, from, from that data point as to your eligibility for future driving licenses. And then people start thinking about um, what I'm doing, just and righteous and okay, and instead start thinking about how does this look? Am I getting red flagged? They start immediately self-censoring themselves because even if somebody turns out to be in the right or uh, comes out vindicated six months later, being red flagged in the first place might, might still have cost them their job, their marriage, and their kids. So you're creating, an enormous, you're creating an enormous pressure to conform, which also hurts the economy because the ones who don't conform are our entrepreneurs. Reason number two, it is not you who determine if you have something to fear. And point two and a half here even assumes that the surveillance systems have correct data in the first place, which they have been proven again and again and again to not have. What does that mean? Do they, they, have, they don't have the correct data. Can you give me some examples? Well, for, for some reason, there are surveillance systems which have false data. There, it could be software bugs. It could be faulty entering. It could be just a misunderstanding that somehow down the road lead to action being taken against an individual. I don't have an example at hand right now. It could be something as simple as the old movie Brazil from 1984, where a literal bug, a fly, a house fly, fell into a printer and changed a, a, a letter in, in a last name while it was being printed for action. Stuff like that happens. We know it happens. Right. The third point ties back into what I said about entrepreneurs. You'll, you'll remember that entrepreneurs are the ones who conform the least, deviate the most, who challenge society's conceptions, who are the unreasonable people that make, frankly, society progress. And that's the thing, progress. Being a little bit blunt, laws must be broken for society to progress. A society that can enforce all of its laws will stop dead in its tracks. And ponder this. If today's surveillance had been in place in 1950s and 1960s, the gay rights movement would not have been able to form because it would just have been a matter of rounding up the organized crime because this was criminal at the time. It would just have been a matter of rounding up the organized crime, which we would have done with today's surveillance. And so homosexuality would still have been illegal if today's surveillance had existed in the 1950s and 1960s. Laws must be broken for society to progress. There must be an ability for the individual citizen to challenge the system. If enough people challenge the system, the system must break. That is absolutely crucial for the development of our values. And you're preventing that kind of development by having this kind of surveillance. I don't think, in hindsight, the way we're looking now, people disagree that our values have gone forward, that our values have generally become more humane, more understanding, and frankly, better. And if we want them to keep getting better, we need to allow for people to break today's values. And is, there a, is there a concept where if you looked at all the laws of a given country, 
all of them and pretended as if they were all to be enforced. How much, and I don't know how to express this probably, but What's again, if you took a country and you said all the laws are all of a sudden enforced, how much would the average citizen be breaking them? Is there a yeah, concept the that has a name for that? What is that that's called? The if if that, that's the point, isn't it? I mean, they, they say that ignorance of the law is no excuse, and, and at the same time, it is absolutely impossible for any person to know all the laws. So you have a, a contradiction in terms right built into the fundamenta of our judicial system. It is the, the only time I know when somebody actually knew all the laws was on Iceland and its first parliament, which was in 935 AD, like over a thousand years ago. That parliament had a person standing up ahead of every parliamentary session and reciting the entire land of law of the land verbatim. Since that happened, nobody has been able to recite the entire law, and, but yet you're still being held to it. So, which kind of brings me to the fourth point, that privacy is not a luxury. It is not a right. It is a fundamental human need. It is deeply wired into our psyche. And if you want the most simple explanation of that, it is that I lock the door behind me when I go to the men's room. There is no breaking of the law that happens in, 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 when I go to the men's room. Everybody can kind of guess what happens when I go to the men's room, at least in, in the large terms. Right. But I think I have a right to have that moment to myself. Therefore, I'm locking the door. And it's that logic. It is that need. It is that really, really important wiring that you are not just questioning, but undermining when you say that if you have nothing to hide, you have nothing to fear. So if you have nothing to, nothing to hide, why are you closing the, de the restroom door? Right, exactly. Yeah, why aren't you having a camera in your bedroom when you exactly. have uh, uh, sex with your partner? Why can't that be videoed, you know? It was, it was a movie that came out a month or two ago in the U.S. called The Circle. And it was really mm -hmm. spooky because it takes that idea and you could see the brainwashing of the people in the movie that, that explore that concept. Well, why shouldn't we follow everyone? It's for your own protection. That, that's yeah. another thing I want to say to you. That's, that's another bullshit statement that's made all the time. Oh, it's for your protection, for your protection. It's not at all. You know, what do you have no, to say about no, that? It's no, it's not. I mean, <laughs> even V for Vendetta makes, makes a point out of this. Like, when they're saying sending out a shock groups to arrest a deviant or any free thinker or, or any any person who we would value as, as an independent thinker, the, the, these fans are emblazoned with exactly that, for your protection. For your protection against what? Dissent? Like the idea? Ideas that deviate from the narrative? So who do you, where do you see the hotspots are in the world that you want to address your organization in particular? What, what are the top issues? You know, it, I'm sure it changes all the time, but where are the worst offenders? Where are the worst spots that you have to fight? Uh, U.S. and U.K. in particular would be, very, would be the drivers of the surveillance society at this point. Obviously, the Middle East is in, in the world of shit, but we, we can get them tools so the next generation starts building in the society and then 50 years have replaced the current structure. Though that's not the case with the UK and the US. But what really worries me is that this, like you, like we started out talking about, this is not something that most people even have on their radar. There are two 
busy going to the daily grind, working nine to five to carry home just enough money to make ends meet month by month by month by month, which turns to years, which turns to decades, leave, dropping the kid, kids off in the morning, picking them up at night, and all of a sudden 20 years have passed and they didn't really have time to more than look at the newspaper at a glance, right? So what's going to really hit, I believe, is that there is a financial backlash coming from the U.S. having printed dollars like there was no tomorrow since August 15, 1971. When the United States defaulted on debt, it wasn't phrased like that at the time, of course, but every U.S. dollar used to be good for one 35th of a troy ounce of gold. So they were all IOUs. They were being traded for gold. And and frankly, the war bankrupted the United States. And I'm not talking about the Iraq War. I'm talking about the Vietnam War. Gold coverage, or the coverage for these IOUs, dropped precipitously. And it, it was Charles de Gaulle of France who demanded that U.S. repay its loans. They did. But then default the rest of the we're not going to pay you back. You can trade these bills between yourself. And after that, obviously, it wasn't worded as a default because that would have been uh, that would have, have had much more negative connotations. But when you're saying we are not going to pay back what we owe you, ever, that's what the financial world calls a default. And since then, the U.S. has been printing money that, like, there was no tomorrow. And, and at some point, there's going to come a day of reckoning for that. We're not living in a very, some say that we we are living in a very stable financial time that dates back to 19, no, that dates back to the uh, 16th century. That is not true. We're living in a huge experiment that started on August 15, 1971, and it's coming to an end. So when that happens, there is going to be a lot of turmoil. There's going to be much suffering. Unfortunately, I don't like when suffering happens, but I can't see it being avoidable. And I think that's a time when you will have a chance to discuss, hey, what's really going on here? How do we get into the situation? And I have absolutely no idea what, what happens on the other side of that event, but I know that when that event hits, it is good, it's going to be a chance to have people break their daily drum and actually listen to what's happening because their retirement just vanished, you know? Yeah, well, one more thing I wanted to ask you. It just came to mind, you know, when I when I think of WikiLeaks and I think of other organizations, I personally feel scared to donate to them. Let's say I wanted to donate to them and send them money. You know, I'd yeah. worry that I'd be on a watch list. Yep. So it seems yep. also that these these is a very isolating effect too and a chilling effect of It is. It is. Against organization. What do you say to people that, that feel that and fear of supporting any organization like this because they'll be rounded up and shot, you know? Yep. Essentially. That is, yep. I saw this train of thought, I believe, maybe five years ago by somebody who said exactly this. But what they followed up with stuck with me. They said that as I was planning to donate with these, it struck me. You said that I might actually punish for doing this. And then they they continued. And that's when I realized that this is exactly why I must donate to WikiLeaks. Hmm. Any other suggestions on how to help people reconcile their fear 
or really can't do that responsibly? I mean, well, any other thoughts? Well, I mean, you, you have you've got you've got lots of anonymous ways to get around the surveillance apparatus, but you got you just got to be a little bit careful doing it. As long as you don't take in any advice that seems to be coming around, but research your stuff a little bit before circumventing, like use a, use the Tor browser bundle, use Signal, use these best-in-class encryption services, then you have a really good way of getting around it. If you're using cryptocurrency from which you obtain from an ATM, so there's no, there's no backward trace, uh, trace for it, you can donate to anybody you like without fear of repercussion because it cannot be traced back to you. But knowing how things can be traced back to you is key to understanding the surveillance machine. In particular, how points are connected. For example, you might, you might buy an anonymous rail card, but this rail card is tracked from point to point to point to point. Somebody in the system is being called X, and that X is you. And the first time you're using your credit card to top up this rail card, they have an identity for this X. So understanding how data is cross-referenced, that if you're leaving your identity just once at some point, that might be enough to track you in a completely different context, which is why I, I didn't say just pay with Bitcoin. I said pay with Bitcoin that you obtain for cash at a Bitcoin ATM, not with a credit card. Gotcha. All right. Well, it's been a fascinating discussion. Um, for listeners, what is a, a good way for them to interact with you know, the Pirate Party and maybe work with you to help you in your efforts, you know, find out more. What are some resources? Where should they go? Where should they look? Uh, so I have a blog called, which is just my last name.net, falkvinge.net. Uh, that's F-A-L-K-V-I-N-G-E.net, where I, where I write from time to time. I am also writing for Private Internet Access, where I work as head of privacy, and I also write in our corporate blog. And for the Pirate Party in countries, they, we've been founded in about 50 countries, where I founded the first one, and the have been uh, been us. We're very successful in Iceland, where we're parliament. We are growing in uh, a lot of other places like Catalonia and the Czech Republic. The UK and US are a little bit of different political system, but there are fire parties growing in the United States and the UK as well. You can find them easily just by searching online and and uh, chatting with your local favorite activist. And if you want to get in touch with me, I would absolutely welcome it. You'll find details under contact on my blog. You have been listening to Almost Here, Around the Corner Future Technology Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Subscribe to this podcast, post a review, to discover more future technologies that are poised to transform our lives for better or worse, such as Bitcoin, artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more.